Chapter 10 of The Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Verdict Here was a surprise indeed. Prelice knew that Dr. Horace had worked his way up from a humble position and laid no claims to being of gentle blood, but he had never referred to the existence of a single relative, and the young man had always believed him to be alone in the world. Now it seemed that Agstone was his brother, and when Prelice recollected that Agstone was the same hirsute, red-haired, uncouth animal in appearance, it flashed across his mind that the brothers were twins. The extraordinary thing was that he had not noted the close resemblance before, since he had seen Agstone dead and Horace alive within the last few hours. But the idea of connecting a common sailor with an eminent scientific man had never entered his mind. In the cab, on the way to the new bailey, Horace gruffly gave his companion a few facts to substantiate his statement, but Prelice observed that he said as little as he could. My full name is Horace Agstone, explained the doctor bluntly, but as I got on in life and rose in the world, I dropped the last and kept to the first. Steve is my elder brother, by one year, and we are the sons of a Suffolk laborer. I had the brains of the family, and in one way and another managed to cultivate those same brains with the result. No very great one, you see. Steve went to sea, and we did not meet for years and years. When he returned to England with old Lanwin, he went down to Suffolk to look up the family. Our parents were dead and buried but Steve learned my name and address from the vicar. He came to look me up, but as we did not hit it off very well, we considered it best to live our lives apart, as formerly. That's all. Prelice threw his cigarette out of the cab and stared at the horse in a meditative way. Strange that you should be connected with this case also, he remarked dreamily. The doctor grew red and looked fierce. What the devil do you mean by that? I have nothing to do with the case. Your brother, I have nothing to do with my brother. He and I were born of the same mother, but beyond that we are, I mean we were, seeing he is dead, nothing to one another. If he chooses to kill people and be killed, that is his affair. No one can connect Steve Agstone with Dr. Horace, save the vicar of Burfield in Suffolk unless you betray me. Not that I care, Mark you, Prelice. I learned that fable of the old man and his ass very early in life, and never trouble about people and their opinions. I don't intend to betray you, said Prelice coldly, but flushing all over his freckled face. You can be brother to Satan for all I care. Moreover, I have given confidence for confidence. If I know about your relation to Agstone, you know about the knife's evidence, which I and Shepworth suppressed. Right, right, don't get your hair off, said Horace, gripping his companion's knee in a painful manner. You and I are chums of the wild, old son, and those of that breed don't go back on one another. He released Prelice's knee and leaned back thoughtfully. Of course, it was a shock for me to learn of Agstone's death. Didn't you see it in the morning papers? No, I have more to do than to read riffraff rubbish. 
You were the first to inform me. Well, Horace leaned his arms on the splashboard calmly. Steve's gone to see father and mother on the astral plane. I expect he will quarrel with them as usual. They never got on together. Prelis suppressed a smile at this odd, unchristian way of viewing death and nodded. I quite understand why you don't believe Agstone to be guilty, he remarked after a pause. Meaning that I'm a born fool, retorted Horace genially. Make no mistake, old son, if Steve were guilty, I should not defend him in any way. But he was too devoted to old Lanwin to murder him. Besides, the doctor suddenly checked himself. But that's neither here nor there, my son. What isn't? asked Prelis alertly. Never you mind. Ask no questions and you'll be told no lies. Here we are at the door of the Temple of Falsehood. Get out. Prelis alighted with his companion, sorely puzzled to know what this enigmatic remark meant. That Horace knew of something which had to do with the Lanwin case, he was perfectly sure. That the something implicated the late Mr. Agstone, he was also certain. But Prelis knew his friend sufficiently well to be satisfied that he would not explain, unless it appeared to him needful to do so. All that could be done was to trust blindly to the rugged old sinner, and perhaps he would be able to lead those concerned in the case out of the labyrinth of crime. He certainly appeared to hold a clue. Dr. Horace, more brusque and domineering than ever, pushed his way into the crowded court, eliciting comments the reverse of complimentary. Of these, with characteristic cynicism, he took no notice but secured good places for himself and Prelis. In a few minutes he scribbled a note and sent it to Cudworth, K.C. The council read it with a puzzled air, glanced at the writer across the crowded court, and whispered to the usher. Shortly Dr. Horace was requested to go to the lawyer's table, and was soon in deep conversation with the big barrister. While this was taking place, Prelis stared at Miss Chent who looked weary and sad as she sat in the dock. The strain of her perilous position was beginning to tell upon her, which was scarcely to be wondered at. Again her roving eyes caught sight of Prelis, and again she blushed, this time drawing a corresponding signal from him. Apparently the natures of these two were sympathetic. The case was rapidly drawing to a close, as the witnesses for the prosecution had been examined, and now those for the defense were giving evidence. From a solicitor at his elbow, the young man learned that Cudworth had succeeded in proving the destruction of the will in Mona Chint's favor. This had been done by the production of half-burnt and minutely torn scraps of paper rescued from the grate in the library. These, pieced together, had revealed the mention of the prisoner's name and of the ten thousand a year and of the love and affection felt by the testator for his niece. As the will could not be found, and it was certain that Sir Oliver had framed no new testament, the presumption was that the burnt document was the will in question, and despite all efforts the other side could not prove otherwise. This was assuredly a great point in the prisoner's favor, 
as had she murdered her uncle, she would certainly not have destroyed a deed which made her wealthy. It was with great surprise that Prela saw Shepworth placed in the witness box to give evidence, since he had left him practically imprisoned in his own flat. Possibly Inspector Burge had received instructions from Scotland Yard on detailing what had happened in Alexander Mansions to afford the judge and jury the opportunity of seeing how similar the murders of Agstone and his master were to one another. Shepworth was perfectly cheerful and composed, much more so than he had been on the previous day, so apparently he had no fear that his arrest would lead to his conviction. Indeed, he was so clearly innocent that Prelice expected he would be set free after the inquest proceedings on Agstone's body had taken place. Meanwhile, he caught his friend's eye and smiled, after which he smiled again encouragingly at Mona. Shepworth's evidence was to the effect that Miss Chent loved her uncle and would never have harmed him in any way. Sir Oliver, in the course of an occult conversation, had referred to a certain herb, he did not give it any name, which when burned produced trances. Apparently when prisoner entered the library to make up her quarrel with Sir Oliver, the baronet had been testing the herb, and the fumes had reduced Miss Chent to an unconscious state. Then Shepworth went on to detail his own experience, and narrated the same story as he had told to Prelice, to the two doctors, and to Inspector Burge. Finally, he mentioned that Agstone had re-entered the dining room before returning with the masked lady, holding a knife, as Shepworth naturally was not asked if the knife was concealed in his desk. There was no need for him to commit perjury, which he would have been unwilling to do, even to save the girl he loved. While the barrister was giving his evidence, Lord Prelice was called to Cudworth's side and introduced by Dr. Horace. He learned that the counsel wished him to appear as a witness and substantiate Shepworth's story, which the young man was perfectly willing to do. It thus happened that when Shepworth retired, Cudworth examined Prelice and heard from him how Shepworth had been found unconscious, and how many people, including Captain Jadby, had seen him in this helpless state. This evidence induced the recall of Jadby, and he reluctantly swore that the barrister was indeed unable to strike the murderous blow which had slain the old sailor. Both Shepworth and Prelice had given evidence as to the finding of the knife under the table by Inspector Burge, and that officer himself next appeared to say how he had picked it up. Mrs. Blacksley, Madame Marie Eppingrave, and the two Grange servants were then called to depose that the paper cutter with the jade handle, found in the flat by Burge and produced in court, was the same that had lain on Sir Oliver's writing desk in the library, wherein the crime had been committed. Thus the jury and indeed everyone else, believed that Agstone had murdered his master, and then had brought the knife up to Alexander Mansions, presumably to kill Shepworth. But of course the question as to who had killed Agstone was not touched upon. The final witness was Dr. Horace. 
and he dealt entirely with the questions of the perfumed smoke alluded to by the prisoner and by Shepworth. Producing a grotesque brown root and several stems covered with purple leaves, more or less withered, the doctor deposed that it was a certain plant growing in Easter Island and nowhere else, so far as he knew. The natives gave it no name but termed it the sacred herb, and it was used by their priests to induce trances in which the spirit was supposed to leave the body and appear before the gods incarnate, so to speak, in the gigantic statues of the island. Belmain for the Prosecution did you give any portion of this herb to Sir Oliver Lanwin? Witness, emphatically. No, I was acquainted with Sir Oliver in the South Seas, but I never met him in England. We did not get on well together and were better apart. Belmain. Then how did Sir Oliver become possessed of this herb, which, by your own showing, is to be found only in Easter Island? Witness. I cannot say how Sir Oliver got the herb. Of course, he was sailing the South Seas for years and probably went to Easter Island. If he did, he certainly would have secured a portion of the herb from the native priests, seeing that he took so profound an interest in occult matters. Belmain Then you think that Sir Oliver was experimenting with the herb when Prisoner entered the library? Witness I think it extremely likely, considering the presence of the white smoke and the tube rose perfume, which is exactly the kind of scent given off by the herb when burnt. The fumes of the herb would choke prisoner in the way she stated, and reduce her to unconsciousness. Belmain, significantly. To complete unconsciousness? Witness. I think so. Seeing that she was not accustomed to the smoke of the herb, a slight smoke would place anyone in a cataleptic state merely, but a dense smoke would take away all consciousness. It did so apparently in the case of Miss Chent, and although Mr. Shepworth was simply cataleptic at first, the waving of the bronze cup under his nose plunged him into the deeper state. Belmain how did Agstone become possessed of the herb to burn in Alexander Mansions? Witness. I really cannot tell you. Perhaps he went to Easter Island with his master and got some leaves of the herb. Or it might be that, when taking the knife away from the library, he also secured the leaves which were lying on Sir Oliver's desk. Belmain quickly. How do you know the leaves were there? Witness coolly. I am only surmising. If Lanwin was experimenting with the herb, he must have got out his packet of leaves and roots. I expect not being used to the herb, he was reduced either to catalepsy or to unconsciousness, and while thus helpless was murdered. Belmain By Steve Agstone? Witness I am not prepared to say. Very dryly. A very improper question, rebuked the judge, and Belmain sat down feeling that he had not scored off this rugged witness. Before Dr. Horace left the witness box, the judge, prompted by the foreman of the jury, requested him to burn some leaves of the herb at once. 
but do not reduce us to a state of catalepsy said the judge with a smile we have to finish our business you know a china plate was brought and on this horace gravely laid two or three leaves of the sacred herb on applying a match a thick curl of pungent white smoke arose like a summer cloud and the odor of tuberoses was perceptibly indicated in the heavy atmosphere of the court prelice who was standing near the witness-box and so smelt the perfume very strongly suddenly felt sick and swiftly pushed his way into the fresh air he was inclined to faint being susceptible to odors and but that a good samaritan addicted to alcohol had produced a flask of brandy he would have become unconscious when quite restored he thought how very powerful the herb was when even so slight a breath of the smoke could muddle his senses no wonder that miss chent and sir oliver and shepworth had become unconscious when the full power of the burning purple leaves was poured through the rooms prelice did not feel inclined to re-enter the court and sat outside in the vestibule smoking a cigarette here he was joined by captain jadby which rather surprised the young man as he thought that the sailor's love for mona chent would have kept him in the court also prelice was surprised when jadby approached him in quite a friendly way and with an apology i hope you have forgiven me for my rudeness last night lord prelice was his ingratiating remark i never gave it another thought retorted prelice brusquely pray do not apologize again you did so last night thank you said jadby smiling all over his smooth feline face i am glad that you take it in such a spirit by the way i never knew that you were acquainted with dr horace prelice stared at this impertinent remark very probably he said stiffly but then you know nothing about me i know that you went to easter island lord prelice i heard of your visit when i went there myself oh said prelice alertly then you visited the island also i have just said so rejoined jadby coolly but i did not bring away any of the herb if that is what you mean it is not what i mean said the other wondering why jadby should say such a thing i don't accuse you of murdering sir oliver even though you inherit the property he was thus pointed and rude to get rid of the smiling man before him as he felt the same antipathy to jadby as he would have done to a cat the one animal which prelice could not endure but the sailor was not at all annoyed or if he was did not show it rather did he smile in a very satisfied way yes i do inherit the property he remarked and there is a good reason why i should really observed prelice considering what the reason might be but unwilling to ask yes really retorted the captain still smiling of course i am sorry for miss chent but when she marries me all will be well you forget sir she marries mr shepworth they are engaged replied jadby with a shrug but i do not think they will ever be married 
Mrs. Rover, Prelice interrupted imperiously. What do you mean by mentioning Mrs. Rover's name in this connection? He demanded, flushing. Oh, said Jadby with his hateful smile. I understood that you and Mr. Shepworth were intimate friends. Good day. And before Prelice could stop him, Captain Jadby had vanished amidst the crowd, leaving, like the wasp he was, a sting behind him. Prelice frowned. He recollected Shepworth's blush, Lady Sophia's remarks, and now considered Captain Jadby's hint. It would seem that his friend was either in love with Mrs. Dolly Rover or was entangled in some way. If that was the case, he could not possibly love Mona. And if he did not, Prelice's face grew crimson and his eyes brightened. Then he shook himself free of the thought. Jadby was implying that Shepworth was behaving dishonorably, and Prelice could not bring himself to believe that such was the case. He had known Ned too long to doubt him. All the same, he felt that an explanation would clear the air, and concluded to ask Shepworth for one as delicately as possible. Upon that explanation would depend his future movements. Lord Prelice walked up and down the vestibule, musing on Mona, on her perilous position, on Shepworth's possible entanglement with Mrs. Rover, late Miss Constance Newton, and on the enigmatic hints of Dr. Horace dealing with the mysterious cases in which friendship had involved him. Thus thinking, he lost all note of time, and it was only when a court official came to turn on the electrics that he became aware of the passing of time. Glancing at his watch, he found that it was several hours since he had left the court, and he determined to enter again and hear the speeches of the counsel for the defense and prosecution. But just as he turned in the direction of the court, he heard a cheer, and an excited throng of people poured out. In two minutes, Prelice was in possession of the news, and learned that Mona Chent had been acquitted. She was free. End of chapter 10